Sugarcoated. I'm your host, Adrian Garland, the CEO and founder of She Leads Media. For far too long, women have been conditioned to sugarcoat their words, their actions, and the way they show up in the world, and to conform to certain cultural norms and ideals. This is inherently designed to keep those who are outside of the norm from gaining power, prestige, wealth, and influence, preventing more women from being recognized and respected as the powerful leaders that we truly are. Join me each week as we dive into raw conversations with remarkable, uncompromising, and inspirational women that will encourage you to strip away your sugar coating and move boldly in the direction of your magnificent dreams. everybody and welcome to Sugar Coated. I have a very special guest with me here today. Her name is Sarah Newman and she is the executive director of the Climate Mental Health Network. I'm going to let her talk all about what that is, but this is an organization, a nonprofit organization that she started in 2021 after her own struggles with climate emotions. We're going to dive into what all of that means and what she is doing through the Climate Mental Health Network in order to help people to heal. So welcome to Sugar Coated Sarah. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to talk to you. And I was I was saying just before we sort of got the podcast rolling that when I when I heard about the Climate Mental Health Network, I I, I, for a moment was taken aback, like, oh my gosh, yes, there, you know, there's a mental health crisis in the United States and in the world, period. But if you think about the environment that this mental health is, you know, happening within, it's not just the, the circumstances, but it does extend to our actual environment. There's a lot of stress about our future, period, as as a human species, right? So I love the fact that you have started this organization to help people, I assume, just recognize and start to figure out ways that they can cope with and hopefully heal from some of the things that are going on in the world. So can you talk a little bit about you know, why you started this nonprofit organization in the first place. Sure. And just thank you for having me and just great to be here. For many years, I've been just having a lot of existential dread about the planet and what is happening because of the climate crisis and other related environmental issues and the just loss of all life of all of the flora and fauna, all of the species, and what also this means for humans in terms of human suffering and human survival. And I know that's a lot to start off with the beginning of a podcast, but it's something that's just, I've really struggled with for a long time. And it really just started to worsen a few years ago. And I started looking for resources and support, and I wasn't really finding much. What I did find was really great, but I you know, quickly realized that this is a huge issue that tens of millions of people are just like me who are struggling with the impacts of the climate crisis, but don't have any access to tools or resources. And so without much of a well-thought-out plan, I uh, decided 
that this is what I should be doing and decided to start uh, the Climate Mental Health Network. Amazing. So can you also take us back a a little bit? And I I really want to understand because there are, you know, there are so many people that are sensitive to so many different things, right? Like I'm someone that is very sensitive to other people and their emotions and moods and, and all of that. And of course, so concerned about everything that's happening with the environment, but going to that place of, you know, it's heavy, right? That like what could actually become of us, our our kids, our, our grandkids, what are what are we handing them? To start thinking about that and going down that path, I, I can imagine that being really heavy. I, I feel blessed that I don't allow my mind to go there. And again, you know, there are certain people that are sensitive to certain things. So had you always sort of been, you know, from when you were young, like out in the woods, part of the environment. Can you talk just a little bit about who you are? Mm, Yeah, thank you. So, I mean, I'm the type of person who would see, you know, a movie about like tropical rainforests and I would be crying or, you know, I became a vegetarian when I was a young kid. I was about nine years old. Mm. So I've always, I don't know, I when I see worms on the sidewalk after a rain, I always pick them up to make sure that they don't get smushed. Um, you know, little things like that. And, but, you know, I think for a really long time, I was living in this place of individual behavior and kind of getting obsessive, like zero waste household. And, you know, you couldn't bring a plastic bag in my house. And if you did, you had to take it back out with you. You know, Mm -hmm. just like just a lot of like really strict behaviors and kind of toggling, vacillating in those, but really kind of taking on this, I need to do everything I can and not seeing this more as we are living in a system that is creating the climate crisis. We're all human. We are all such imperfect beings and I can try to do the best that I can, but I can only do so much as an individual when I'm living in a system that is by design built around fossil fuels and extractive economies. And so really starting to look at this more of, you know, I can not take a million plastic bags, but is that really going to, how much of a dent is that going to make? And I'm still going to pick up all the worms and save them and, you know, things like that and work at, you know, volunteer at farm sanctuaries, but really looking at, the systems changes and that 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 is really what is so needed and i and i think also you know when you're talking about just the scariness of the climate crisis 100% and it's not a place that you can just stay in all the time you just you can't no. you can't survive your body your nervous system is completely overwhelmed it's just not healthy and so it's really you know a lot of this is about when you are engaging in the climate crisis, you know, how are you doing that in a place that in a way that is mindful and supportive and not overwhelming and not, you know, causing you to feel burned out, but, you know, ultimately can potentially still be nourishing. Mm, Yeah. And so that seems to me to be what the, the mission of the Climate Mental Health Network is, right? Because it's that it's that spectrum that we can go to in our minds. Like, you know, there's no hope, right? Or digging our head in mm-hmm. the sand. 
So we have to operate somewhere in the middle. And, you know, as an individual, we do have power, right? We our actions. People see what we're doing. We can inspire other people. So we absolutely do have a little bit of control. But yeah, we, we sort of got to this place. And I talk about this a lot because of these systems that were created a long time ago without the knowledge that we have today. So was it right for the long term? No. But did they know that back then? I don't know. Maybe. But there are so many systems that are in place today that do need to be reevaluated and reimagined. I mean, everything, like you're saying, from our energy, the way that we use energy, our corporate structures, like everything needs to be reimagined because it, our current systems are not for humanity. They're, they're for something else that yeah. is just not helping us, you know? Um, so I'm right there with you. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, I, I can really relate. I'm obsessed about like how corporate structure is not designed to help humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's designed for a very small portion of the population who then get to make decisions probably all about climate and everything else that just doesn't consider us and our long-term survival. So I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah, <laughs> Just, I think, from a different perspective. Yeah. Uh, but also, can you talk about, because something else similar that we share, um, although it seems like you probably had a lot more fun than I did, um, you w- were also in the media industry, but it, it looks like from, like, the, on the film side of things. So can you talk a little bit about that, too? Because that's super interesting. Sure. This is one of those random, like you're planning life and, you know, life happens while you're making other plans type of things. So I actually had been working on a climate interfaith climate campaign in California, which was an amazing organization called California Interfaith Power and Light. And then um, I was there for several years. And then I went to UCLA to get a master's in public health. And I was studying primarily environmental health issues, but also media and health and how media can be a tool to really promote health issues and you know support behavior changes. And while I was in grad school, the movie An Inconvenient Truth came out and I was so blown away by the power of this movie. I was getting emails from organizations telling me to go to the movie theater to see it, which was so unprecedented. And the movie had such an incredible impact built on decades, you know, because of decades of work by climate activists from so many different sectors, but it was just the timing was impeccable. And it was such a key moment to really shift the conversation and behaviors on climate at the time. And I was just so blown away by what this film had done. And although I was living in LA, I did not have any connections to the entertainment industry, but I did have one friend who worked in the entertainment industry. And I I asked him, I said, by the way, do you know anyone who's with this company that made this documentary with Al Gore? And he said, yes, I happen to know one person there. And I went and talked to them um, just to have an informational interview. And there was like 10 people at the time at the company. And he said, oh, you know, you should apply. We're going to be growing. And so I applied for a job and was hired. Um, And so it was just, you know, I landed in this world where I'm had no idea what I was doing when it came to the film industry. And people were talking about like 
film log lines and green lights and film art. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And I was, you know, the resident, like kind of hippie public health person, but it was really incredible. And I ended up there for many years and then working as a consultant and it was doing research and then developing and running a range of, of, a range of impact campaigns for many different films, both documentary films and narratives, some that were nominated for Academy Awards, like Food Inc. and The Cove. And it was, yeah, an extraordinary field to work in. And it just, you know, to one of the biggest things for me is the power of storytelling, whether it's film or podcasts or, you know, written, but it's just people, people need to connect with stories. They need to connect with characters and individuals and how critical stories can really shape and influence conversations and really spark change, both at a behavior, an individual behavior level and also at a systems level. Mm. So can you talk about the work that you do at the climate health, I'm sorry, climate health, (laughs) (laughs) climate health, mental health, climate mental health network? (laughs) Sure. You know, and I just wanted to go back to when you're talking about like the systems and so forth and the power that we each have. And I just want to echo what you were saying, because I'm, I'm totally on board that each of us have an opportunity to take action and really to try to shift the system. The systems that have created the climate crisis are not going to change by just a few leaders. It has to, it takes all of us to chip away and try to change those systems. And those systems are extremely complex. And so there's rules and opportunities for people to be engaged in so many different ways. And this is not about everyone needs to be out in the street and be Greta Thunberg. There are so (laughs) many different models and and ways to engage. But at the same time, it's like a lot of, you know, seeing the limitations that you as a human can do in your individual life, you know, and that goes back to like, what I was saying, like, you know, you can try to be a zero waste household, and that will only go so far, but you can really try to be aware of your carbon emissions as best possible, but also practicing a lot of self-compassion around it. And then at the same time, really trying to change the system that is creating the means of which the carbon is being emitted. So, Mm. but the organization, we have a, a youth focus because young people more than any other population are disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis. And we are addressing the impacts to youth through an intergenerational approach. And so the organization is an intergenerational-led organization. I am a Gen Xer. I have a co-founder. He is millennial. So it's already intergenerational leadership. And then in terms of our programming, we have a lot of programming for young people. We have a Gen Z advisory board, which is 10 young, incredible leaders. And we support them offering like micro grants and having them inform our vision and work and programming and participate in events. And then we also offer a lot of programs that are based on our research and resources for both educators, teachers, and uh, parents and caregivers. That's amazing. I love that intergenerational approach. It gives a lot of, I'm like struggling for the words because what I'm, what I'm thinking is often 
the older, the wiser, or, or, or sometimes, you know, the youth who understand the technology, they're the ones that are held up on the pedestal. But it seems that your approach is, it's honoring everybody's opinion and thoughts. And that is something that I think is, is very different, right? And in just the way organizations are structured, like the hierarchy Mm-hmm. You are almost giving equal weight to all because we are all in this together and we do need to consider everybody's perspective. Exactly. 100%. So I like, love this model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. And I feel, you know, one, there's a lot of research showing that by this great group called CoGenerate and it's research showing different generations wanting to engage across generations on both climate and mental health. So Mm -hmm. there is a lot, it's broken down by, you know, different generations, like what the data shows for Gen X or millennial boomers and so forth. But the data is supportive of this, that people want this. And I can just speak from my own experience. I mean, I, I see intergenerational work as it just strengthens us. It's, Again, trying to move away from a more kind of hierarchical and sort of hero model that we often live in in our Western world. And, you know, to your point, like no one person's going to save us and we're all in this together. And yes, you know, I could be a parent, a mother to many of the Gen Z advisors, but so hopefully I'm able to impart some of my life experiences to them. But at the same time, I'm always learning from them and so inspired by them. And I think it's just, it just creates more strength and more wisdom to have so many different perspectives and voices come together in, in the work. And I think also, particularly when you're talking about young people, we can't just do programming for young people because it's isolating them. And it's, it needs to be all of the people that they're engaging with in their life can be also supportive people to help them with their climate emotions. And those people also need support. And so that's why we're doing this work with teachers and and parents as well. Can you talk a little bit about this whole entire concept with just mental health and climate emotions and things like that? Because when we, when we, when we think about mental health, there are so many different reasons behind it. And and I have to be honest, I, I never thought that, you know, I know people are passionate and, and want to change, but I, I never thought that it could be something that would cause anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yes, I know that, that that there are so many like awful things in the world that give anxiety. So like honing in on this one area, not how many people are are sort of suffering from this type of of mental health crisis but is, is this something that like anybody who is suffering at some level is thinking about things like this yeah it's a really it's a really good question here's how I'll answer it so there's People are experiencing, you know, perhaps mental health issues because of, a, you know, a range of experiences, whether it's violence or poverty or racism or misogyny. And so people are going to have a range of perhaps mental health experiences because of those. And then you add on top of that the climate crisis. And so that might be that 
you know, just the general knowledge of the climate crisis is creating anxiety or perhaps someone is displaced because of extreme weather because of the climate crisis. So that's one, mm. you know, it's, it's very, it's very complicated. There's also maybe people don't have any pre-existing mental health conditions at all, but they could now be experiencing a range of emotions, including say depression or grief because of one knowledge about the climate crisis, just reading in the news what's happening, whether it's wildfires or floods or hurricanes, or they could also be experiencing these emotions because they've experienced that. You know, they could have trauma because their home burned down in a wildfire or they had to leave their home because of flooding or, you know, whatever it might be. So Mm. there's like a range of ways that people have are experiencing the mental health impacts um, because of climate. And it's, it's not a kind of cut and dry way to explain it. Yeah, no, I, I, it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, because there are so many people that are directly affected and, you know, by being displaced, like everybody in Lahaina, yeah. right? And, and it's, it, it's not just displaced, it's also loss of life, yeah. right? It's like, we're seeing this stuff play out right yeah. in front of our faces. This isn't, you know, these events are more and more common and, there's also, I would think, this, because not everybody believes that there's a climate crisis, mm. there's also probably a little bit of self-questioning, like, wait a minute, is this just a random, you know, happening? Or yeah. is there truly a climate crisis? Am I really, is this is this reality? Yeah. And I think that can also get you wrapped up in, like, I don't even know if this is real. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, like, there's all this data from Yale and George Mason University, where they do a lot of climate communications research. And fortunately, the data shows that the majority of Americans across political affiliation do believe um, that it's happening. So I think that also we're living in a time now where, you know, the data shows the majority of Americans do believe it, whether you're a Democrat, unaffiliated or Republican, so forth, but also that there's still the really loud kind of bully voices that are dismissive of it. And so I think that yeah. also impacts people and it makes it harder for people to be more open about what they've experienced. And I mm. think that even if you don't use the words climate change, if you go to any community, whether it's a red state or a blue state, wherever it might be, and you talk to people about there used to be a river here and the river is dried up or there was a river here and it flooded and our homes were destroyed. People are going to have strong feelings, experiences, emotions about what they're going through and what the implications are, you know, to their families, financially, whatever it might be. And I think also, you know, the data does show that this is, you know, in terms of the mental health impacts, this is very real. One of the most important studies was published in The Lancet in 2021 of 10,000 youth worldwide in 10 countries. And that showed that 75% of the youth said the future is frightening because of climate change and four in 10 do not want to have children because of the climate crisis. Wow. And then there's also some data in the United States of Gen Zers and it said that 
68%, this was um, this past year, 68% said um, climate change negatively impacts their mental health. Really? And we're at the point now where virtually no one can say that they haven't lived with some type of extreme weather because of the climate crisis, whether it's like extreme heat or wildfire smoke from Canada. You know, it's yeah. it's devastating and it's and it is very scary. Yeah. So is is the work that you do primarily around the mental health aspect of things or mm-hmm. is it about what you can do to help you know, make change when it, when it comes to climate change? Yeah, it's super great question. I really appreciate that because the two are so deeply connected because if people are feeling a sense of powerlessness or hopelessness because of the climate crisis, one of the most important buffers to that or antidotes is taking action. So mm-hmm. a key, so a key part of addressing the mental health impacts is really for people to be able to have the tools for their own self-care and wellness so that people are not living in a daily life of, you know, fear or anxiety or helplessness. And just Mm. to know that you're able, you know, to experience joy and gratitude and all of the range of emotions that you can go through in one day both positive and negative, but really being able to experience, you know, those positive things. And then also for people to understand their own power, their own agency, that they have a role to play and that Mm. they can take action in whatever way is meaningful to them. And so taking action is really important as a buffer for two negative climate emotions. But I'll just say it's not kind of a straight linear path, you know, that's, oh, I was anxious and now I'm, now I'm not. It's, you know, there's a lot of back and forth and kind of making loops and circles and, and so forth. So how can people learn more about the incredible work that you're doing and get involved? Yeah. So our website is climatementalhealth.net. And we're also on Instagram at Climate Mental Health and also on LinkedIn. And we have lots of free resources available for download on our website in English and many are available also in Spanish. Yeah. Mm. And please uh, reach out um, if you you know have questions or are looking for more things. And do you do events? Uh, you're, you're based in New York. D.C. In, in DC, sorry, yeah. I no, knew you were okay. on East Coast. I wasn't, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure. So East Coast, do you do events all over the the country? So most of our events are online. So yes, thanks mm-hmm. for bringing that up. So we have lots of online events. Um, we have one coming up in October for World Mental Health Day that will be oh, geared great. for our parents. We have done uh, one event in person in, in Los Angeles, and we're doing another one next week in person for uh, Climate Week NYC. Awesome. Oh, my gosh. That's so exciting. I actually won't be here next week <laughs> as we're recording this. I'm, I I teach at Rice University and oh. their online MBA program, and we uh, do global field experiences. Actually, it's funny. One of the client companies that we're working with is deals with uh, just carbon offset and, and climate change and uh, helping companies to be more responsible. Oh, that's great. Which is uh, amazing. Yeah. 
So I, I'll be in Bogota, Colombia wow. next week instead of New York City. So <laughs> otherwise, I, I definitely would have come. This sounds so interesting. Sarah, I am thrilled to know you. I love the work that you're doing. I think it's so important for people to recognize that there, there are these, you know, I think larger, more looming things that are happening that are having an impact on us that sometimes we sometimes we don't recognize, right? It's like that that beat in the background or that sound that when it shuts off, you you realize that it was very loud, you know? And so I think it's something that we all need to sort of ask ourselves and also understand that our kids or our, you know, grandkids, they are going to have to deal with this. So we do know, we we do need to know, we need to be armed with the information so that we can help them. Right. So I, I just totally love everything that you're doing. And I'm so excited that my good friend, Jerry Connolly introduced <laughs> me to you um, and that he is mid-career, yeah. which I think is like another really great message for all, you know, everybody. Of course, the the audience of Sugar Coated is, is primarily made up of, of women, but our mutual friend is mid-career and he's completely switching what it is that he's doing to focus on issues like this. And that is, it's so inspiring, yeah. right? So if he can do it, yeah. <laughs> anybody can. Um, and, and you too, right? A big pivot from the film industry into mm-hmm. starting your own nonprofit organization that's doing really great things and making an impact. So that is incredibly inspiring to me and I'm sure to everybody else who's listening. So thank you so much for being here today with the Sugar Coated audience. A huge, just a huge thank you just for having me here for, I just love what you're doing with this podcast and the stories that you're trying to share and tell and about just really, you know, that vulnerability that we need to have in these conversations. And I will very much share that like starting an organization and shifting careers like this is not easy. This is not a walk in the park. No. (laughs) Um, And, you know, thank you to Jerry also for, for connecting us and, yeah, and just really creating this platform just to be able to share about all of these issues and allowing me just to talk about what Climate uh, climate Mental Health Network does. And, you know, and I'll just, one thing I'll just say is that one of the most essential things, you know, what we talk about in this work is that you just can't lose hope. And if you don't have hope, mm-hmm. then what's motivating you? And I think that just applies to so many things in our lives. This is not just about the climate crisis. And this is not just about having like a Pollyanna sense of hope, but it's really taking what a woman named Joanna Macy has coined active hope. And it's really doing that intentional work and steps to building that world that you envision and that you want. And that can be in like a very personal way whether it's in your career or what we're trying to create here with addressing the mental health impacts of the climate crisis. And so I just feel like what you're doing with this podcast is really giving a space for people to just share the challenges of that journey. I love it. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for mentioning that active hope. I think that is such a beautiful 
way to think about things that is not Pollyanna, but but more you know reality based. So again, thank you so much, and and you know I hope that everybody listening can go and check out what it is that you're doing and can get involved because we all do need to. We really do need to be involved for our own good and for the good of of the world and humanity, future generations and, and all of it. So thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks. The She Leads Podcast Network.